All right, good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. Uh, welcome to Zoe Church. I'm Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we got kind of a lot to get into today, so let's just start. So Ecclesiastes 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're continuing the series called East of Eden through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's been pretty uplifting and encouraging so far. Now, while you're getting into it, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Okay, let me let me get the ball rolling here. What makes something worthwhile? It could be anything, but just think about it. For you, what makes something worth your time? Or if you want to think about it kind of from the opposite angle, what makes something a waste of time? You know, I was reading about this guy named Brooks Adams. He lived in the kind of toward the end of the 19th century, and then he li- he died in the Depression era. So he kind of lived between two different ages. And he was pretty successful in his time. He went to Harvard. He went to Harvard Law School. He wrote a book that uh, I never read before or heard of, um, but he was pretty successful. Um, but what he's best known for today is is his diary. Okay, he kept a journal, and, and it's still around. And in his journal. Yeah, he started when he was a little kid. In his journal, when he was eight, he wrote down this journal entry on this one specific day. He wrote down, went fishing with my father today, the most wonderful day of my life. Eight years old. I have an eight-year-old daughter, so it kind of resonated with uh, with me. Um, now, he didn't know this, um, uh, but his father, Brooks's father, Charles Francis Adams, he also kept a journal, a diary. And if you look in this journal or this diary and you look at the same calendar date, what you see is that he also wrote down what he did that same day. And what he said was, spent the day at the lake with my son, a day wasted. Why are you, some of you guys laughing? Do you not have kids? <laughs> All right, is this like a painful thing? How do you decide whether something is worthwhile or a waste of time? Like, what's the thought process? How do you decide what's important on the one hand or an impediment on the other? How do you know? How do you decide? What is kind of your decision-making process? The thing was, Charles Francis Adams was a father. Yes, of course he was a father. He had other kids. But he was also a busy man. He had responsibilities. He had work to go to. He could hardly afford to spend an entire day at the lake just throwing this fishing line into the water ad nauseum. I mean, he had places to be, he had people to meet, he had things on his to-do list, so to speak, to check off. To him, clearly, it was a waste. And what's really sad is that Brooks, I don't think he ever knew this about his father's perspective, he would often talk about that as being one of his favorite memories of his life, even toward the end of his life. But for Charles Adams, clearly it was a waste because it wasn't productive. I mean, think about it today, right? When we, you know, we call our spouse from work and we say, hey, I'm not going to be home for dinner. I know I said I was going to be there, but something came up at the office to just go ahead and eat without me, put the kids down and I'll be back when I can. Here's a question. Why did you choose the office over your spouse? Like, I'm not saying that it's not important, but I'm just wondering why you would do that. Why didn't you tell your boss, look, I already said I was going to be home for, for dinner, I have a family, my kids need me, I, can I do it tomorrow? Why did you make that calculus in your mind? And I use this example most often uh, because most often when it comes to what we consider optional and what we consider mandatory, we draw the line between what's work 
and everything else. If it's work, I got to do it. If it's my boss calling, then I got to pick up. If it's the office, then I have to cancel vacation because something important came up that requires my attention. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about work. Or as the preacher calls it, toil. You might have seen it in Ecclesiastes 2 if you turn there. Now, I know some of you are between jobs, right? Some of you are uh, working unconventional jobs. Some of you are stay-at-home parents. Some of you are students. Some of you are retired Understand that when the preacher talks about work, he's not just talking about a nine to five, 40 hours a week. He didn't work one of those either. He was the king. The preacher had servants. He he didn't need to work. He had unlimited for all intents and purposes money. When he's talking about work, he's not talking about employment per se. He's talking about what we labor for. What he's talking about is our occupation in the truest sense of the word. The thing that occupies the lion's share of our best time and energy, our best efforts. So whether you're a student or a stay-at-home mom or working 40 hours a week, what we're talking about today is what you do that makes you feel productive. The kind of thing that you do that makes you feel like your life is running on all cylinders, that you're doing something important. Now, let's read the text. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Ecclesiastes 2. Listen to what the preacher says, starting in verse 12. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 12. I should have turned there when I told you to. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Keep reading verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would speak through your holy word. God, I know that there are people here who are in all different stages of life, who have 
all different relationships with work. I know that there are people here who have different relationships with you. Some of them uh, have walked with you for a long time. Some of you don't know you. But God, we know that your word can do what only you can do. It can divide our hearts. It can cut us deep inside. God, it can change us. It can challenge us. It can push us to live totally different lives by grace. And most of all, God, we know that your word reveals who you are. And even, even as we read a text like this about the vanity of life and the vanity of toil and, and labor, and it just seems so disconnected from what we read elsewhere in the scriptures, God, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see you in it and through it. And God, I pray that you would lead us to yourself, even as we maybe despair of the things of this world. God, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes has been called the truest of books. It was Herman Melville who wrote that in Moby Dick. But its raw honesty can really throw people for a loop, especially church people. People who grew up in Sunday school hearing these stories, reading about Daniel in the lion's den and King David and Goliath. We don't expect the Bible to say something like, so I hated life and everything was vanity, the end. We expect some kind of happy ending, some kind of miracle. We expect God to show up with grace and mercy and forgiveness and joy. And yet we read right here in Ecclesiastes that everywhere the preacher turns, there is vanity. And that word in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew of Ecclesiastes, is hevel. Okay, we talked about this the past few weeks, but in case you weren't here, hevel, that word translated vanity, it literally means something like smoke or vapor. Okay, it's something that doesn't really have a lot of substance, right? You think that this thing is going to make you happy. You reach out to grab it, and there's nothing there. It's just dissipating into the air. It's futile. It's fleeting. He's talking about how everything that he's tried in life, everywhere that he's looked, it's all vanity. It hasn't satisfied him. It's basically meaningless. You know, we come to church, and we want to hear about, you know, the joy of the Lord, right? We want to be encouraged, And then every week so far in Ecclesiastes, basically the message has been, you will die, you will be forgotten without having contributed anything meaningful to the world, the end. That's your life. That's all of our lives. Joel Osteen, the preacher, is not, okay, in other words. Now, if it's any comfort, the preacher is speaking from his own personal experience. He attempted to find meaning himself in all these things. He's not speaking theoretically. He's speaking from his own life. Maybe there's something I need to learn. That was the first thing. Some kind of knowledge. Maybe if I could figure out the secret to life, some kind of enlightenment. Maybe there's a life hack. Maybe there's just something around the corner that I have to find out about. Maybe that will help me to find some meaning and happiness. But it only led to more misery. And then last week, we were looking at how he abandoned his quest to kind of figure things out. And he pursued pleasure. Everything that feels good. But his foray into hedonism only left him empty. All the things that feel good don't last, right? He tried laughter and drink and sex and affirmation and possessions. And even even though they do feel good for a time, what he found was the, the feeling was fleeting. In fact, as time went on, as he pursued these things, he felt even more empty. It was all vanity. So lastly, to close out this first part of Ecclesiastes, the preacher turns to work. 
Okay, so maybe it's not something I need to figure out. Maybe it's not just in pursuing pleasure without, you know, any thought to it. Maybe what it, it is is I need to be productive. I need to create my own meaning. I need to pursue kind of a, a purposeful life in what I create and how I labor and what I leave behind. Let's get into it. Three paragraphs, three points. First, we're going to see the event, the thing at the end of the day that makes everything vanity, no matter how you cut it. Second, we're going to see the exertion. What is it about work? Why is this such a big deal for the Bible? Why is it such an important thing for many of us? Third, lastly, we're going to see the enjoyment, okay, the enjoyment that's available right now. Okay, so if you stick with me for a little while, you'll see that there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, even in Ecclesiastes 2, okay? So the event, the exertion, the enjoyment, first the event, the event. What is it that makes everything vanity? Look at verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, remember the preacher, even though he calls himself the preacher throughout the text, is Solomon. Okay, he's David's son. He's the king in Israel. And the thing about Solomon is that he was the wisest man who had ever lived up to that point. He had supernatural God-given wisdom. People travel from all over the world to talk to him, to get his opinion on things. And throughout all his meditations on life thus far, he has wielded wisdom as a weapon. Even as he got wasted on alcohol, he says, he kept wisdom strapped on him at all times. He always had his wisdom with him. But now after exhausting the enjoyments of life, Solomon turns away from his emptiness back to wisdom. And and this time his question is a little different. He turns to consider wisdom itself alongside madness and folly. Is there something that I'm missing here? Okay, maybe just pursuing knowledge didn't lead me to satisfaction, but I know wisdom is something. So let me look at it again. Keep reading verse 12. He says, for what can the man do who comes after the king Only what has already been done. Now, even in English, you're not quite sure what he's saying here. And in the Hebrew, it's not very easy to translate, okay, into English. Different translations will translate it differently. Literally, it says something like, for what is the person who comes after the king that he has already done? Basically, what he's getting at, if you kind of just kind of read between the lines here a little bit, if you kind of look at the context, what he's saying is, He has a unique position to do what he's doing. Okay, basically he's saying, who can do more than what I, the king, am doing? Right? What can someone else do after me? At best, they can do what I've already done. Right? Even if they have as much money as me, even if they have as many wives as me, whatever it might be, they're not going to have the same wisdom as me. So if it's not me, then who's going to do it? He's kind of feeling this despair over everything. He's feeling empty. He feels like every way he goes is a dead end, but he doesn't want to give up because he knows that uh, his wisdom gives him a responsibility. With great wisdom, comes great responsibility. So he pursues meaning even more. And then it looks like he might have found something, verse 13. Then I saw, he turned to wisdom. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light. Then in darkness, he turns back to wisdom and it seems like actually he sees something he didn't see before. Now we're getting somewhere. Uh, He looked at wisdom big picture and he didn't find meaning or happiness in, in just being wise and having knowledge. But in looking at wisdom as opposed to madness and folly, being crazy and being foolish, 
he realizes that wisdom is still clearly better, just as light is better than darkness. It has practical gain. There's utility to it. Now, okay, we're talking about wisdom. I said we were going to be talking about work. So what's the deal with wisdom here? Why are we talking about this? Let's get on the same page. When you hear the word wisdom, what do we think about? I mean, I know I, I searched Google images for wisdom and it was like an owl. Okay. So we think about things like that. It's like an old guy at the top of a mountain. We think about someone who has some knowledge or information or enlightenment to share with us. We, we make our trek up to the top of the mountain. We ask the guy, what is the meaning of life? He's lived so long and he's going to tell us it's whatever he's going to tell us. But to the Hebrew mind, wisdom was different, not completely different, not the opposite, but that's incomplete. Okay. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hokmah. And what hokmah means is not just knowledge, but knowledge applied. Okay, so you could be a smart person, you could be a learned person, but to be wise, you had to actually know how to implement that knowledge in a constructive way in your life. So knowledge was always tied to action when it came to wisdom. Okay, so you could be smart, but you could still be a fool. The wise person had book smarts and street smarts. You could see the fruit of their wisdom just in how they lived. It's not just enough to write a book about business. Do they have a successful business? Do they have a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera? That's why in Ecclesiastes, later on in chapter 7, verse 11, the preacher writes, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. He actually says wisdom is a good thing if you have an inheritance. It's better to be wise with some money than to be a fool without it. He's saying, let's just be practical here. It's obviously better. You can buy more, you can invest, you can have more freedom. Ecclesiastes 10 says, wisdom helps one succeed. So when you read the book of Proverbs, you see a lot of practical stuff, talking about how if you work hard, then you could save money and you could be successful in life. So here's what the preacher is doing. He's going back to the drawing board. He's trying to find meaning in life and studying things with wisdom. He's trying to find happiness by pursuing every self-indulgent thing you could think of, but those were dead ends. So he turns to the fruit of wisdom. Okay. That's what he's turning to here. The gain. What if I pursue productivity instead of pleasure? What if I go after success instead of sex? What if I max out my potential? What if I'm actually, you know, doing something with my life? Like, I don't know about you, but have you ever known somebody, maybe an old friend from high school or something, who was totally going down the wrong path? They were trashing their lives. Uh, they were just ruining everything. And then you see them a few years later and everything's turned around. Right? They completely turned their life around. Maybe you knew them and they were like addicted to drugs and they weren't working and, and they just looked like they were on the verge of death. But then you see them 10 years later and they're walking down the street. You hardly recognize them. They're wearing a suit and you talk to them and they, you know, they got clean and now they're working and now they're richer than you and you have no idea how this happened. Either they did something illegal or they turned their lives around. Either they did something that uh, is going to bite them in the end or what they did was they heard about a job opportunity and they actually got up off the couch to take advantage of it. They heard about a program that would help them overcome their addictions, and they went to it. They got some knowledge, and they applied it. In other words, they got wise. This is, if in a crude way, exactly how wisdom works to the Hebrew mind. It's knowledge and action. Stop wasting your life. Start doing something. 
Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. At least the wise person isn't stumbling through life, isn't actively adding miseries to his own day-to-day. At least the wise person can see where he's going. There are many advantages to being wise over being foolish. But then look at the rest of verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. The same event, what is that event? Verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What is he talking about? It seemed like he was turning a corner, but then he says, never mind. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm wise because something's going to happen. Verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. What are you talking about, Solomon? How the wise dies just like the fool. How the wise dies. The event is death. In Hebrew, the word is mikra. It means fate. All roads lead to the same final destination. Whether you're stumbling around in the dark or you're sprinting in the light, eventually the wise and the fool, their paths will converge at the very same place, the grave. Now, death is usually the elephant in the room, but not for the preacher of Ecclesiastes. In fact, as we read this book, as we dive into it, you'll see that Ecclesiastes is a veritable safari with how many elephants are in here. He talks about death all the time. He's constantly talking about death. Why? Why is it such an important idea for the preacher? It's because this is the universal equalizer. This is the one thing that you can know for sure. So many of us, we have so much anxiety. We worry about the future. What will happen? What might happen? Here's one thing that will happen for sure. You will die. The preacher knew he will die. He did die. I will die. You will die. And no matter how good we are at life, and that's really kind of a shorthand way of understanding wisdom according to the Hebrews, being good at life, no matter how successful we are, how productive, how promoted or respected or powerful, we're all going to meet the same fate. Wisdom for all its advantages cannot protect us from death. So let's go back to the original question. What are the worthwhile things in life? What are the things that you think are worth your time versus a waste of time? I mean, people ask this question all the time. If you were going to die tomorrow or in three months or in one year, how would your life change? What would you start doing? Here's the truth. You are going to die. I don't know when. How does that affect how you process what's important? Let's see what the preacher thinks. Verse 17. He says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. The word for grievous here is a, a word that means burdensome. As he thought about this, it weighed heavy upon him. At first, he was a little excited. I'm going to be productive. I'm going to be successful. I have all the gifts in the world to do so. But when he thought about how he was going to die, it made him despair. He's someone with massive success, tremendous gifting, and yet he realizes, verse 16, it's all going to fade away eventually after he's gone, and all he can think is, I hate this. I hate this. Why am I building this kingdom if I'm not even going to get to rule it in a few years? 
You know, it's funny. I was thinking about something the other day, and it kind of coincides with this. You might not think a lot about, you know, the end of your life. Maybe you do. Some of you think about legacy, what you're going to leave behind. Some of us are just kind of getting used to being alive on earth because we're like little kids. But besides that, right, I was thinking about how, okay, let me give you a backstory a little bit. So Zoe Church, right, the church that we're in right now, uh, actually we're in the Methodist Church, but you get what I mean. Okay, our church. Uh, it was planted by a church called Lighthouse. I talk about this all the time. But I was at Lighthouse for a long time, okay, 11 years. Uh, I started going there when I was a college student. It was a brand new church plant. It was small. I got to know everybody. They were really like my church family. I had just become a Christian, so it was really formative for me. And, uh, you know, I, I served there. Uh, I, I started going to seminary. I, I got trained there. They gave me uh, the title pastoral intern, which I thought was really cool at the time. Now I kind of feel like it's a little degrading, but um, that's what they gave me. I, I um, was there as a pastor. They sent us out here. We still have a good relationship with them. Okay, now when Lighthouse started getting bigger and I was a pastoral intern, uh, the church was so big that you couldn't really tell who people were. You didn't know if you knew if people were new or not. Um, maybe we feel that a little bit now at Zoe, a little. Um, but what they did was they printed these name tags out for people who were like on staff. Okay, so the pastors and then the pastoral interns like me. And if you were looking at me from far away, you might even not see the AL intern on there. You might actually think I'm a pastor, right? So I thought it was pretty cool. I had this name tag. I was on staff at this church. I was training to be a pastor. I was almost there and I'm wearing this name tag. And you know, I, I'll be honest. It didn't make me feel like a little bit more important. It made me work a little bit harder. I'd show up to church and I'd be like, all right, I got to act pastorly here because people might want to, you know, know how to follow God from me. And that's what I did. And then I moved to Texas and that was that. But actually it wasn't it. Okay. So every, you know, like I, I still have family that lives in California and I visited Lighthouse a number of times. And, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at Lighthouse in the office. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I love those people. I worked there for so long. I went to the office and on the wall, they had the name tags of people who had left Lighthouse hanging up there. Okay. In remembrance, you could say, right? Not because they died. Um, but because, you know, like they went on to plant churches or be pastors at other churches, etc. Um, so I'm looking right at the name tags and I see like Eric Lau on there. And then I get to the end and guess whose name is not on there? Mine, right? I searched in vain. I was like, what the heck? Like I was here for 11 years, mind you. Uh, Eric was only there for like six years. Um, so I, I was looking and I don't know what happened. I guess I, they said, you took it with you to Texas. It's your fault. And I have no idea where it is. Uh, so the thing was at Lighthouse, I had a small taste of this. I had given so much. I had served there for so many years. I had invested so much of my life into ministry there. And I come back just a few years later and there's no sign that I ever existed at this church. And it is a funny thing. But as I was thinking about it, that's really what it is. That's how it is for all of us on a long enough timeline. You dedicate your life to something. You feel like you're an important part of the team, right? At work, you know that there are contributions that you made. Maybe you were a leader in some way. Maybe you think about, you know, your family or, or maybe you're a teacher and you have these kids that you invest in. Maybe you were an athlete and you set records, whatever it might be. But then a few years later, you have this realization that no one really remembers you, that life has gone on. And for the preacher, what's so hard for him to take is that no matter how great he is, even if he tries to be remembered, death is the thing 
that will cause him to be forgotten. Eventually he will die, and then the people who knew him will die, and then the people who remembered him will die. There are advantages, right, to to working hard in your career or, or, or for trying to get your kid to be the best baseball player or maybe just having the, the nicest home and you're a homemaker and you're the best cook, whatever it might be, whatever you labor at, whatever you kind of find that identity in. But what do these advantages matter if at the very end of the day, no one's going to remember? Life just goes on. We'll move on to the second point, but uh, uh, maybe like a year and a half ago at that lighthouse, and I said, hey, do you guys still have like a name tag maker? And they said, yes. I said, can you make me like a name tag and put it on the wall? And they were like, yeah, what's your name? <laughs> and uh, they, they knew who I was. They knew who I was. Um, but uh, they said, yeah, yeah, sure. And then I went back even more recently, just a few months ago, and I looked on the wall. They didn't make one. So they're never going to make it. Second point, the exertion, the exertion. Okay, so we got our feet wet. The event is the thing that on, that's on his mind. The fate that, uh, the fate of all mankind, death. That's what's on the preacher's mind. The preacher turns to living wisely, but in the end, even that is vanity for we all die, but he's not dead yet, or he's not done yet, excuse me. For some reason, he wants to talk about work. And he identifies that work is the thing that takes up our lives, whatever that work might be. And he knows that we are drawn to work. We are drawn to trying to make our lives meaningful in some way, even though a lot of us don't enjoy it. So what's the deal? Well, before we look at verse 18, we need to take a short time out. We're calling this series East of Eden. All right, I've explained this a little bit. The reason why we're calling it that is because it captures a certain idea. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see the first human beings, Adam and Eve. They rebel against God. They sin. They take of the forbidden fruit, and God warned them not to do it. They do it. And as a consequence for their sin, God casts them out of the garden, out of paradise, to the east. Okay, so east of Eden is a metaphor for the lives that we all live as sinners, We are cast out of paradise. We are made for a world that was good in every single way, but because of sin, we live in a world that has fallen. But here's the thing. Okay, work was actually given in Eden. Okay, work was part of the created order when everything was good. Uh, Work was originally a good thing. God made us to work. Adam and Eve were given an entire garden to cultivate. They were given a mandate to build a family, to populate the earth, to build a home for humanity. They had productive, meaningful things to do. In fact, all the good that can be found in work, that's what work was like in Eden. And there are echoes of that still to this day. I know for all of us, I mean, let me ask you, is there anything in life that you enjoy doing where when you do it, you just lose track of time? Where you feel like I could just do this forever. Now, that thing oftentimes is something that is not the easiest thing to do. For some of us, it is gardening, right? Just like Adam and Eve, or it could be woodworking. It could be reading difficult things. It could be writing. It could be exercising. It could be design or music. It could be driving. You name it. For me, it might be the worst thing ever, right? The worst toil. But for you, for some reason, when you do it, it's just like your brain and your hands connect. It's like, this is what I was made to do. This is how work was meant to be. The funny thing is, for a lot of us, that thing, that thing that we love doing, it doesn't pay well. And that's just life east of Eden. 
See, the reason we're drawn to work, why being productive, why getting things done, why finding a job that aligns with our interests matters so much is that we were made for this. It's why it feels good sometimes to check off that last thing on our to-do list. It's why after you clean up the house, you sit down on your couch and you put your feet on the vacuumed floor and it just feels satisfying for that brief moment because we did something productive. We worked like how we were made to work. But now look at verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. If you look at that word toil, if you're someone who underlines in your Bible, you can underline it. The word in Hebrew is an extremely negative word. He doesn't say I hated my work. He says I hated my toil. And toil, that word can be translated as suffering. I was slaving away. I hated my toil. And we can relate because oftentimes work does not feel like I can do this forever. I mean, work can feel oftentimes like you're looking at the clock and then you look away for a few minutes and then you look back and it's only been 20 seconds. We're dying at work. Some of us, our least favorite sound, we have PTSD, it's our alarm clock. See, something happened. Work wasn't always toil, it became toil. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, not only did they introduce death into the world, not only were they cast out of Eden, but their sin brought a curse. If you, uh, let me read to you Genesis 3, just listen. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Work became toil. Gardening for them became suffering. And then God said, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. Work originally was a blessing. It was a way for us to be productive with our hands and to, to earn our living, so to speak. But because of sin, because of the curse, now, even though we still need to work to earn our living, it's toil and suffering. And we have to understand this because most of us, we look to work with the wrong expectations and for the wrong reasons. I think a lot of us get what we talked about last week that the unfettered pursuit of pleasure isn't going to lead you anywhere good. We know it, right? We've eaten junk food and then we felt terrible afterwards and we realized you can't just live on junk food alone. But I think a lot of us, we think, okay, but once I get past that, once I stop fooling around, then I'm, I'm going to find a career. I'm going to find something to invest my life into. I'm going to find purpose and meaning and that, that's going to be all good. I'm going to love it. See, most of us, we have the wrong expectations and we go to work for the wrong reasons. And the wrong expectation, let's think about that first. A lot of us think that if we can find the right job, then we'll just be happy and satisfied. If we can find our calling, or maybe I missed my calling, if only I just did that other thing, if I had that other major, if maybe I didn't stay at home and I pursued a career instead, whatever it might be, then I would enjoy it. And of course, it is impossible to, to find a little bit enjoy, uh, a little bit of enjoyment in work. Solomon even said that he found some enjoyment in his toil in verse 10. There was a sense of enjoyment in his exertion. And yet toil, no matter how fun it might be for a moment, is still toil. That word is used on purpose. Work is toil. So, so verse 18, he says, I hated my toil. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. 
Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. It's a net negative. That's what he's saying. Even if you enjoy a little bit of it, ultimately, what is work going to bring? It's going to bring vexation. It's going to bring stress. It's going to bring sleepless nights. It's going to bring anxiety. And the lie that I think a lot of us tell ourselves is that if I had a perfect job, if I had the right job, there'd be no stress and no anxiety. I got to change jobs. I'm in the wrong career. Or it's just a crazy season right now. Or maybe if I become the boss, or maybe if I work for myself, whatever it might be. Maybe if someone dies and leaves me all their money. Stress and anxiety are part and parcel of life east of Eden. It's just part of existence in a fallen world. A whole generation, my generation, the millennials, we were taught that you need to find a job that you love. That's why we have all these sociology majors and art majors who can barely support themselves. Now, I was an English major, too, so thankfully God called me to ministry, so I have a job. I read a book called Finding a Job You Can Love. I actually read that book. We were led to believe that if you find a job you can love, then no day of work will ever feel like work. I remember someone telling me that. If you find the right job, you got to find the job where working there doesn't feel like work, where it just feels effortless and fun. And I do enjoy ministry. But I got to say, it's not effortless and fun all the time. There are some jobs that are better than others. Again, relative wisdom. But the truth is, work is by definition now toil. No job is going to be 100% enjoyable. And yet we complain about our jobs as if it should be fundamentally different. We dream of greener grass. We apply for it endlessly, job to job to job. Some of us quit work entirely. I know many people disillusioned with their careers, and they don't know what to do now because it just wasn't what they thought it was going to be. If you expect work to be thoroughly enjoyable, you'll expect in vain. We have the wrong expectations. We also go to work for the wrong reasons. If you go back to verse 18, look at what he says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. What he's talking about here, some of us do try to work for the pleasure of it. That's a dead end. But a lot of us, we know it's not going to be fun. We don't work for fun. We don't work for pleasure. We work for profit. Okay, we're not thinking about, okay, is this job going to be enjoyable for me? We're thinking, okay, is this job going to give me a lot of money, a lot of benefits? Am I going to get status and recognition? Is this job going to help me out at the end of the day in the long run? But the preacher has come to a realization. If you think about it too far in the future, you always end up at that pesky dead end, which is death. You're not going to be able to keep your stuff. You know, for some reason, I was watching The Golden Bachelor you know what that is? It's The Bachelor, but it's a guy in his golden years. Okay, he's he's a senior. And uh, yeah, I was watching it. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, the generation that he's from, honestly, I feel like they're they're purer than, than we are. They didn't grow up with social media and stuff. It's very honest how he's sharing about things. He He doesn't Think about, okay, am I going to get canceled or whatever it might be? Or I, I just want to be famous on reality TV. But what stood out to me was, I just watched the first one, okay? But in the first one, he was saying that he and his wife, so he was a widower, he and his wife had, you know, been working and saving for retirement. And when they retired, they were going to go travel the world together, something like that. 
And right, like literally like the same year he retired, she passed away suddenly. And he was all crying. I was really sad. I mean, it's kind of sweet too, but it was very sad because he had, he had been storing up this treasure, so to speak. And she wasn't able, and he wasn't able to enjoy it with her. And that's how it really is. That's what the preacher is saying. And, and sure, he says, maybe you can retire. Right? Maybe you can enjoy that. Maybe you can make a lot of money. You can pursue pleasures, all of those things. But at the end of the day, we don't get to keep the fruits of our labor. And even if we pass it off to our chosen heir, to our kids, who knows what they will do with it? Even if we pass off our business to our most trusted assistant, who knows if he will run it into the ground or not? Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. It's almost like the better you are, right? the more gifted, the more successful you are, the more that you have to lose. This is vanity. And he despairs. He calls this a great evil. This isn't right. See, the reason you work hard is to earn, to earn enjoyment and money and respect. But he sees that because of death, because of the temporariness of life, because everything is so fleeting, the very concept of earning for the future is kind of a joke. So ask yourself this, what are my expectations when it comes to work? Whether you're trying to pursue a new career, whether you're a student now preparing for a career, whether you're retired, what are you trying to invest your life into? What do I hope to get out of my labors? Am I trying to get happiness from it? Am I finding my identity in it? Am I hoping to earn enough money or enough respect or hoping to create a legacy that people will talk about for eternity? If that's what you're trying to do, it'll only lead to despair. So the truth is, the tighter you grab onto these things, the harder it is to grasp. And this could be not just in work, okay? And I keep saying that. But some of us, we, we, we feel like, okay, if only I am the best parent, right? Forget work, right? I don't care about money, but I, I want my kids to be 100% successful, right? I want them to have a good relationship with me. And, and maybe you will have a pretty good relationship, fallen world speaking, but the truth is, if all your eggs are in that basket, when your kid has a problem, when they're not as successful, when they get sick, when they feel like maybe you're too overbearing, it'll crush you because they aren't perfect. Whatever you invest in, this is what the preacher is saying, whatever you think is so important in life, the more important you think it is, the more despairing you will feel in the end. And this is the last point. Again, as I said last week, the preacher isn't trying to make us sad. He's trying to save us. And where he leaves us today is in a surprisingly good place. We talked about the event, which is death. We talked about the exertion, the toil of work. The third point, the enjoyment that's available right now. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And at first you might think, okay, he's just giving up. I think I read this before. The Apostle Paul was talking about this, uh, kind of a eat, drink, tomorrow we die kind of thing. Oh, well, who cares? Life has no meaning. But if you keep reading, he says, this also I saw. And let me stop you for a moment. In Ecclesiastes, there's a pattern. 
right? He, he looks at things and then he gives his conclusion. This I saw, and he keeps saying the same thing. All right, let me read to you Ecclesiastes 1.14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, I saw all is vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 1.17. I perceived, I saw that this also is a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 2.11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He keeps looking and then he keeps concluding that it's all vanity. And then I saw, I realized what everything really is. It's empty, it's smoke. But here he says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. It's different. And then he says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He has barely mentioned God so far in this text. But in this concluding section, he will mention him several times. He says right here, this, everything is from the hand of God. In other words, everything is God-given. Everything is a gift. The ability to eat and drink and find enjoyment and toil. It's not something that you earn. It's something that you are given. The preacher concludes with this realization, if nothing in this world can satisfy, maybe the problem isn't the world. Maybe the problem is you. And what he's saying here is, God is the one who can give you the gift of satisfaction. Apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Nobody. That's the implication. But with God, everyone can. Notice he says, find enjoyment. God has to change you. He changes our perspective. That's the key. You know, I heard someone once say something like this. It's like everything in this world is kind of like a locked safe. And you can't get to what's inside. You'll never find happiness looking to those things unless you have a key. And God can give you that key. The world cannot give you true enjoyment unless God gives you the ability to enjoy it. Apart from him, we cannot ever find satisfaction. That's what the preacher has been building up to all this time. So here's a point of application. And I actually have three. This is different. I have three for you today. Here's the first. Savor. Savor. Stop looking for something in of itself to satisfy you the next hit, the next job, the next book. Instead, enjoy the moment that you've been given. Because every single thing we have is a gift from the hand of God. Every moment, every single thing, good or bad, objectively, it's all a gift from God. It's all grace. When Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they ate of the fruit. Do you remember this? And that fruit, God said, if you eat it, you will surely die. They ate of it. And yes, they did die spiritually speaking, right? Their, their, their uh, relationship with God was severed. But at the same time, instead of physically dying in that moment, what did God do? He killed some animals instead. And he covered Adam and Eve. He covered their nakedness with the animal skins. Every single breath that they took after they were cast east of Eden was a gift. And that's the same for us as well. Every single breath we've taken is grace. And if we can perceive as the preacher does that this is all from the hand of God, we can start to find enjoyment in anything. And I have a friend who actually puts this into practice. Uh, he'll like drink a cup of coffee. And then we're just sitting there and he'll be like, this is so good. And isn't God so good? And I'm like, this is weird. 
Um, and it is a little weird. It's kind of funny at first. But after I, I kind of gotten to know him more and he kind of explained more, I realized that he's actually trying to do what the Bible is saying. He's trying to live a joyful life because he receives everything with thanksgiving. You know what First Timothy 6 says? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything. See, our problem is we're looking to things to give us joy, but if we have the joy that God gives, then we can look at everything and enjoy it. You can enjoy trials. You can count them as joy. Why? Not because they're good in and of of themselves, but because these trials lead you closer to God. Spurgeon said, what did he say? He said, I learned to love the waves that threw me against the rock of ages. Your trials can work out for good. So savor what God gives. Now there's one more verse, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after when. Now there's interesting wording in here. He talks about sinning, uh, sinning, a sinner, which he hasn't talked about before. He talks about God giving to the one who pleases him. What is he talking about? So you might have thought that this is just a kind of a a simple perspective shift. You just got to get some gratitude in your life, a little self-help. But there's more to what Solomon is saying than that. He is contrasting the sinner and the one who pleases God. He hasn't talked about this before, but he will later on in the book. In fact, the very last verse of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says this, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, this life, it is a vapor, but this life is not all there is. At the end of this life, when we reach the fate of all mankind, when we arrive on the shores of eternity, we will face the judgment of God. This in of itself makes everything matter because God sees everything that we do. We were taught in the parable of the minas, we preached this a few weeks ago, that the master gives to the faithful servants what once belonged to the unfaithful. How you live before God matters. So here's the second application, steward. You are a steward of your life. See, part of the vanity of life is thinking that it belongs to you, that it's all about you. But when you use it for a greater purpose, for an eternal one, everything changes. Some of us, we aren't happy because people aren't living the way that we want. We're so, we're so self, uh, self-focused. We're hoarding life. And we're not tapping into the highest purpose for why we are here on earth. We're here to prepare for the next. We're called to be stewards of our life. And then lastly, uh, last application, store. You gotta store up for the future then. And I don't just mean retirement. If there is a judgment, if there is a world beyond this one, if there's something above the sun, so to speak, then we need to think about how we can prepare for then. So how do you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven as opposed to treasures on earth? It's a, there's a lot to it, but one thing is invest in things that matter. Work toward things that last. And I don't just mean buy high quality things. I'm talking about things that will last unto eternity. 
Invest in the things of God, for instance. But you don't just have to become a missionary or a pastor to do this. You got to invest in the things that will last forever. And let me, let me illustrate this for you. I read this guy uh, about this guy who was talking about how when his grandparents, his beloved grandparents died, uh, they left him three things. Okay. They gave him this old raincoat. They gave him an old pocket knife and they gave him an old chair. That's what they wanted to leave to him. And he said that for him, they were some of the most important things in his, in his house, in his life. But objectively speaking, those things were trash. <laughs> they weren't, they weren't resellable. They had no value. They weren't antiques, but he didn't value those things because of their monetary worth. In fact, he didn't lo- uh, love those things because of their utility. Like this is the sharpest knife of all time or the most comfortable chair. The reason why he treasured those things is because of the relationship that he had with his grandparents. You see that? He said to him, they were treasures. It wasn't the things, it was the relationship. It was the times they wore that raincoat while they were loving him. Memories fade, okay? Memories fade, legacies die, even people pass on. But what does the scripture say? Love never ends. And for those who believe in God, and this is kind of the elephant in the room at the end of Ecclesiastes 2, the real one. Who are the ones who please God and who are the sinners? The truth is all of us are sinners. Every single person, no one pleases God. So what did God do? God sent his son into this world of toil and he toiled as a carpenter. But even more than that, he accomplished the work that God gave him to do, even to the cross where he died and he suffered for our sins so that we could be, even though we don't please God, we could be seen as those who please God. So that when we go and we arrive on the shores of heaven, God can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And we can live for a home in heaven. Love never ends. People, in a sense, who believe in Christ will never die. And these are the things we can invest in. Ecclesiastes, what it's saying in the first few chapters is that you can't change the world, but you can change somebody's world. And that is a gift. So store up what matters. Invest in relationships. Invest in ministry to people. Give to those who are needy, for it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you have eyes to see, if you have the grace to enjoy, everything can be meaningful then, if it's for him. Even fishing all day. And we'll close here. Charles Francis Adams, he thought a day fishing with his son was a waste of a day. And maybe you'd be able to understand Charles Francis Adams. He was a big deal. Look him up on Wikipedia. Okay. He was Abraham Lincoln's ambassador to England. Okay. He had a very important role. And if you know his family, it gets even crazier. His dad, Charles's dad was John Quincy Adams. Okay. He was the president. And then his grandfather was John Adams, the president and the founding father. But if I showed you a picture of a bunch of men from the 1800s and told you to look up or or pick out Charles Adams out of a lineup, would you be able to do it? Of course not. Aren't you Americans? You don't know this guy. He's an American hero. Even John Quincy Adams or, or John Adams, just another guy with wooden teeth and a white wig, right? We don't know exactly what they look like. What if Charles Adams understood that there were more meaningful things than putting in another day at the office? What if he got how important it was for his son to have that time? What if he could have actually enjoyed it? 
And this is what Ecclesiastes is saying. Meaning and happiness, you can't know your way to them. You can't indulge your way to them. You can't work to earn them, not east of Eden. Rather, you must receive them as a gift. And when you do, everything will snap into focus. You realize how unimportant so many things are, and this will give you clarity on what's actually important, and it'll give you the capacity to actually enjoy whatever it is that God brings into your life. Now, I'm not saying quit your job and go fishing all day. I'm not saying fatherhood is all about fun and not about providing. Please hear me. But what I am saying is the world is what it is, but God has a gift for you to give you different eyes to give you a new perspective, to lift your gaze up above where the sun is to heaven, to be someone who is freed from trying to chase after the wind, someone who can live for eternity and enjoy the things that aren't meant to last, even though they aren't meant to last, someone who can savor the moment, someone who could steward the gift that is your life, and someone who will store up a ton of treasures for yourself in the end. I'll talk more about this as we get into Ecclesiastes, but let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us, God, to to live different lives. I pray, God, that because of Christ, because of who he is, because of the new life that we have in him, God, I pray that we would actually live new lives, that we would be joyful people, whatever comes our way, that we wouldn't give in to idolatry or chasing after the things of this world, God, but that we would find meaning and purpose in living for you. And I pray, God, that everything else will fall into place. God, I pray that you do that work in our hearts now. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.